From famous historical locations to lesser-known areas found in small towns, history leaves shadows that people today can still see. Let's find out their stories together on this episode of Historically Haunted. everyone. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to Historically Haunted. I am your host, Ariel, and I'm back with another episode. And today I will be talking about Lincoln Park and the Lincoln Park Zoo that is in Chicago, Illinois. This is a beautiful park and it might shock you to learn about what is buried underneath. Before I get started, I wanted to thank my executive producers for helping me out with the podcast and the music fees. I also have two new executive producers to say thank you to today, and that is Kimberly and Miranda. Thank you both so much for your support. If anyone is interested in becoming a Patreon to help the show, I have a link to my page down below in the show notes. For as little as a dollar a month, you can listen to my bonus episodes that I make exclusively for my executive producers when I have time to make them. Lately, I've been very busy with family matters, so I haven't exactly had the time, but usually I try to do at least three a month, but the last couple of months have been a mess at my house. But anyway, if you're interested, you can go down to the show notes and check that out. I also send all of my Patreons a thank you card along with the sticker of the Historically Haunted logo. And I wanted to give a quick shout out as a big thank you to anyone who has ever left me a comment or sent me an email. I really do appreciate the kind words. I also wanted to thank Girl for her kind iTunes review. iTunes review are a great and free way to help support the show. Leaving a review will help others discover it so that way they too can learn cool history and listen to neat paranormal tales. All right, everyone, it's time to get started with this episode. Chicago is a really big city with a rich history going all the way back to the pioneer days. This has always been a rough and tumble kind of place. It's hard to hear someone say the name Chicago and not immediately think of 1930s mobsters like Al Capone, John Dillinger, Babyface, and Bugs. But the history of Chicago is so much more than just notorious mobsters from the old speakeasy days. What is today the Lincoln Park area and zoo has had a bloodstained past that goes all the way back to when there was nothing in the area but a fort and fur traders. The park and zoo has quite a morbid history that makes way for the perfect environment for the talk of ghost stories, negative energy, and urban legends. I will discuss all that and more, of course, after our monsters moment. For centuries, people have told stories of having run-ins with strange beasts in forests, monsters in the sea, and having encounters from beyond the stars. I call these Monstrous Moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's Monstrous Encounter. In 2017, the Chicago Tribune had an article about a rash of strange sightings. People were calling in from all over the city of Chicago, claiming to have seen flying humanoids. People also started to call these strange sightings the Chicago Mothman. For those of you who don't know, Mothman is a legendary cryptid that terrorized Point Pleasant, West Virginia from 1966 to 1967. Mothman is described as a large grayish black creature that is between six to seven feet tall. It has no neck, large black bat-like wings, and has glowing red eyes. It is his large reflective red eyes that give off the appearance of a large moth. It has been known to swoop down on people with a blood-curdling screech. It also has been known to just stand there and stare at people before flying away. 
When people see this creature, they usually report the feeling of dread. The sightings in Point Pleasant ended after the tragic collapse of the Silver Bridge that killed 46 people on December 15, 1967. But this was not the end of the Mothman sightings because people have claimed to see this creature all over the world, and he is normally seen before big disasters. The story of the Point Pleasant Mothman is way too long for me to cover today. It involves a lot of different people, strange alien encounters like Indrid Cold, an abandoned TNT site, the Men in Black, a book called The Mothman Prophecies, and possibly Project Blue Book. So I will definitely be doing a full episode on that someday in the future. If you want a full in-depth story of the Mothman, please go check out the podcast called Astonishing Legends. They did a five-part series on the Mothman, and it is insane, it is so connected, and it it makes you go, huh, at the end of it. Even if you start listening to it thinking, this is all totally made up, at the end, I guarantee you, it'll be a head scratcher, at least a little bit. But for today, we are just focusing on, on the sightings that happened in the city of Chicago. While the papers did not report many Mothman sightings until 2017, there have been sightings of this winged creature in the state of Illinois as far back as 1957. And if you listen to my episode about the Great Lakes, you will know that the area is no stranger to UFO sightings. I found an article that has a list of supposed Mothman sightings and you can see how the reports seemed to start in the 1950s and then they steadily increased in the early 2000s and then they peaked in 2017 which is when the paper started to report the strange sightings. I use many different sources for this so please make sure you go down and look at the list of all of my sources down below. Many people believe that the Mothman is a harbinger of doom, considering how almost everyone who has a run-in with this strange creature feels a mix of dread and fear. Some have even felt an overwhelming sense of sadness. In the case of the Point Pleasant sightings, the Silver Bridge collapsed after the Mothman sightings increased to its peak. This makes some believe that the Mothman might be trying to warn others about a disaster that is on the horizon, while some think that he is going to cause such a disaster. Some have claimed to see the Mothman at Chernobyl before its meltdown and even New York City before 9-11. Either way, I do think it's interesting that the sightings in Chicago increased again right before the awful year that was 2020, but in my opinion, Mothman should have been seen all over the world right before 2020 because this was a global event. In Chicago, in 2017, there had been 20 reported sightings by April. The first one was reported by a woman who was out walking her dog in the park. She suddenly saw the creature just standing on the ground. He was seven feet tall and was jet black. The woman froze and she stared at the creature who had large wings folded behind it. As she stared, it stared back until it unfolded its huge wings and flew up into the sky. Her account from the Chicago Tribune was, quote, I felt like it could see through me, read me. It knew what I was thinking, like it could stare right into my very soul. It was the most terrified I have ever been in my life. After this, many more people claim to have seen the Mothman, from people fishing in the evening hours out on the lake to just people walking around the city at night. There had even been some during the day, and perhaps the most famous one was from a man who was standing on the sidewalk outside of a tavern. 
He was outside on a break when he looked up at the Willis Tower and he said he saw a human-like figure with large wings perched on top of the building. He stood frozen as he watched this creature jump off the tower, spread its large wings, and fly off in a northern direction. There was even a report from someone who was claiming to have been a police officer who claimed that he and his partner were driving through the neighborhood when they were flagged down by a small group of people. They pointed upwards toward an apartment building and they all witnessed a large creature with bat-like wings perched on a ledge. The officers shined their flashlights at it and it opened up its wings and flew away. The whole group told the officers that they had been seeing that creature in the area over the past two days, flying around the neighborhood. But there was no way to corroborate this story because he left his name anonymous. According to the timeline of reported sightings, there were about 49 Mothman sightings in the city of Chicago in 2017. Some of these reports even say that they saw multiple flying humanoids spotted flying together in the sky. So maybe Mothman has a friend or even family? No one knows who or what these strange creatures could be. It is easy to scoff at people who make such claims, but when you really think about someone telling you a story about a strange thing that they experienced, what is the thing they normally lead with? They normally say, I don't believe in the paranormal or UFOs, but I saw something weird. I know I have heard that same sentence uttered so many times from people that I know personally. Many people are afraid of sounding crazy, so many strange things that people have seen go unreported. I'm not here to tell you that UFOs, cryptids, even ghosts exist. That is something that you will have to decide for yourself. I just tell you what other peoples have claimed that they have seen, and I will let you be the judge. But when you spend as much time diving into history, UFOs, and the paranormal as I have, it's hard for me to stand here and say that there is not something strange going on in the skies and in dark hallways of buildings that have a grisly past. I have found through research that so many paranormal things are creepily connected in hair-raising ways that I never even imagined before I started this show. Next time you are in Chicago, keep an eye out on the beautiful skyline because you might just get to see Mothman flying between the buildings. Today, Lincoln Park and Lincoln Park Zoo is a beautiful place to visit. Walking around the winding pathways and enjoying the zoo exhibits, you would never know that this area was once a place that people did not want to be around. Back in the mid-1800s, this area was thought to be a dangerous and foreboding place. That's because it used to be the city's largest cemetery. Let's take a look back at the history of Chicago and the Lincoln Park area to see how this place went from a place no one wanted to go to a place that people came from around the world to see. Chicago has been known as the Windy City ever since the late 1800s. 
Although the reason is debatable, the obvious reason would be because of the strong wind current that comes off of Lake Michigan into the city. However, there are U.S. cities that have higher average wind speeds than Chicago, like Boston, New York, and San Francisco. The nickname may have started due to political reasons. There were several cities competing for which one was the most important in the United States of America during the late 1800s, and some people called Chicago the Windy City because their leaders bragged so much. A Cincinnati newspaper and the Chicago Tribune first used the nickname in 1876. Also, many political conventions were held here, so it could have come from the idea that politicians are full of hot air. Whatever the reason, Chicago is an interesting city. Before we dive into the full history of Chicago, here are a few fun facts I found out about the city. If you go to the top of Willis Tower, well, what used to be called Sears Tower, you can look out at four different states. Spray paint was invented in Chicago, and it is home to the Twinkie. The Twinkie was invented in 1930, and it was originally filled with banana cream, but during World War II, bananas became scarce, so vanilla was used instead. The United States' first open-heart surgery was performed at Provident Hospital by Dr. Daniel Hale Williams in 1893. The surgery saved a stabbing victim. Dr. Hale was an African-American doctor who opened the Provident Hospital and Training School for Nurses to provide training for both black and white doctors and nurses. On April 15, 1956, TV stations NBC5 Chicago became the first all-color television station. The first ever televised presidential debate was broadcasted on September 26, 1960 from Chicago's CBS channel, and it was between John F. Kennedy and Richard M. Nixon. Three U.S. presidents also started their political career in Illinois. Lincoln, Grant, and Obama, and Ronald Reagan was born in Illinois. Now that we've got some fun facts of the city out of the way, it's time to dive into the history of Chicago. The Chicago region is the original homeland to at least 15 Native American tribes. Many waterways intersect here, which led to the area becoming an important place for tribes for travel, trade, and healing. Chicago was on the water route that linked the Mississippi River to the Great Lakes. Many French-Canadian explorers and others passed through this area beginning in the late 1600s. The first non-native settler did not arrive until 1779. Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable was a free black man from Haiti. He traveled up the Mississippi River from New Orleans with his Native American wife. He established a trading post near the mouth of the Chicago River, and he moved away in the 1800s. Soon after, in 1803, the U.S. government built Fort Dearborn on the south bank of the river's mouth. Today, this area is known as the Loop Community Area of downtown Chicago. In 1811, British agents came into the area trying to convince Native Americans to support the British Empire. If they did, the British promised to stop the Americans from settling on their lands. Around the same time, a group of Winnebago Indians killed two settlers on a farm on the South Fork of the Chicago River, and after this, many settlers rushed to move into Fort Dearborn for protection. The United States declared war on the British Empire on June 18, 1812. On July 17, the British took control of Fort Mackinac, a small fort on Mackinac Island located between Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. Orders were sent for Captain Nathan Heald to evacuate Fort Dearborn because it could no longer be supplied. Heald was also ordered to destroy all the arms and ammunition. He was also to give any remaining goods to friendly Indians, hoping that they would provide a safe escort to Fort Wayne, about 140 miles away. 
The details that followed are very difficult to validate since there are conflicting reports from eyewitnesses and records have been lost. But this is basically what happened. Captain Heald met with a group of local Native American leaders, and the Native Americans believed that the Americans were going to give them firearms, ammunition, and goods, including whiskey, if they would allow some of their men to give an escort for the Americans to Fort Wayne. Instead, Heald was told to destroy all firearms and ammunition, but he also destroyed the whiskey. So the Native Americans felt betrayed, and because of this, on August 15, 1812, 54 soldiers, 12 militiamen, 9 women, and 18 children left Fort Dearborn. A band of Indians attacked them about one and a half miles from the fort. The fight lasted about 15 minutes and was a victory for the Native Americans. Many Americans were killed, 26 soldiers, all 12 militia, 2 women, and 12 children. The survivors were taken prisoner, and Fort Dearborn was completely burned to the ground. Some prisoners died while they were being held in captivity and others were later ransomed. Fort Dearborn was rebuilt in 1816 following the war. It was stationed with military off and on as needed when there were conflicts with Native Americans. It was eventually given to the town of Chicago in 1837. Chicago officially became a town in 1833 and part of the land of the fort was used for Grant Park. The southern part of the fort was located at today's intersection of Wacker Drive and Michigan Avenue. The population of Chicago grew rapidly between 1833 and 1837, reaching 4,000. Because of its rapid growth, Chicago quickly became a city and was officially named a city in 1837. The completion of the Illinois and Michigan Canal made Chicago an important place for selling wheat and it became the world's largest grain port by 1848. After the canal was completed, the population boomed to over 30,000. The railroad became even more important, connecting Chicago with Milwaukee and eventually the eastern coast. As I mentioned earlier, Fort Dearborn was built in today's Loop area in northern Chicago, but this land was not settled in the 1800s because it was seen as too far from the city limits. The north end of the city ended at North Avenue. A smallpox hospital and the city cemetery was the start of Lincoln Park. The cemetery was located next to Lake Michigan, and people who died from cholera and smallpox were buried here, along with thousands of others. It was a secluded spot which made it perfect for burials and the smallpox hospital. It is estimated that more than 35,000 people were buried in the cemetery. The land here was loose and sandy and very close to the lake. This caused coffins to become loose and rise up above the ground and some would even end up floating in the lake. During the 1850s, many people wanted the cemetery closed because they were worried about diseases getting into the lake, which was the main water supply for the city. The proposal was spearheaded by Dr. John H. Rauch. However, nothing happened until after the Civil War ended. In 1864, the city council agreed to make 120 acres of the cemetery land north of North Avenue into a park. The park was named Lake Park, but then it was renamed Lincoln Park after the assassination of President Lincoln. The cemetery land south of North Avenue was used for new residential development. 
the city contracted with only 10 men to move the over 35,000 bodies to a new location in the mid-1860s. Control of the park was passed on from the Board of Public Works to the new Lincoln Park Commissioners in 1869. The job of moving the human remains was not finished before the Great Chicago Fire of October 1871. There were close to 300,000 people living in the city of Chicago at the time, and the weather conditions created the perfect storm. The Chicago Fire started on October 8, 1871, in a barn owned by Patrick and Catherine O'Leary. Legend says that Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern that ignited the fire. The summer and fall had been extremely dry, and most of the city's wooden buildings and sidewalks, coupled with the strong southwesterly winds, created the perfect environment for disaster. The barn was on the southwest side of the city, and the winds were so strong that the flames blew high into the night sky. The fire burned very quickly, north and east. Large fire tornadoes threw out burning debris in every direction, which spread the fire into more buildings. The first building destroyed was the Waterworks Building, which was the main source of water for the Chicago Fire Department. The fire continued to burn chaotically the next two days. By October 10th, rain came to help the fire department gain control and put out the fire. The fire reached Lincoln Park on October 10th just as the rain was starting to fall. Even with the rain falling, fences burned along with railings around graves. The wooden headstones completely got incinerated and stone vaults shattered under the intense heat. Many people had fled into the park to escape the flames. As the fire swept through a good portion of Lincoln Park area, people had to jump into Lake Michigan or be burned alive. The couch tomb was the only structure in the graveyard to survive unscathed. An estimated 50,000 people were left homeless and spent Monday night in the smoldering remains of Lincoln Park. In the end, the fire burned through the business district and covered an area that was four miles long and one mile wide. The tragedy left an estimated 300 people dead, 100,000 homeless, and about 17,500 structures, along with 73 miles of street destroyed. Damages were an estimated total of $200 million at that time. As for some of the people in the Lincoln Park who jumped into the lake, some of them drowned because they didn't know how to swim. The Chicago Fire Academy was built in 1956 on the site of the O'Leary's barn. The school still trains firefighters here today. But you can't keep Chicago down because Chicago began rebuilding right away and this led to a large population growth and economy boost to the city. Just nine years after the fire, the population was around 500,000 and it reached more than 1 million by 1890. Only New York City had more people than Chicago at the time. Chicago was ready to make their mark and they found it with the World's Fair. A World's Fair was planned for 1893 to celebrate Christopher Columbus's discovery of the New World 400 years earlier. Chicago, St. Louis, New York, and Washington, D.C. competed to host the fair. Chicago was chosen by the United States Congress after some of Chicago's millionaires and one of the largest banks in the Midwest put up more money than the other cities. The official name was World's Columbian Exposition of 1893, but most people just called it Chicago's World Fair. The fair was held in Jackson Park area and covered 690 acres. There were close to 200 new buildings built along the canals and lagoons. The fair opened May 1st, 1893 and closed October 30th, 1893.
Most of these new buildings were built in the neoclassical style. These buildings were not permanent and the exteriors were made of a mix of plaster and cement and then they were covered with white stucco. A large number of streetlights were also used to light up the streets and buildings at night. The area was called the White City and it inspired Chicago and other cities around the country to focus on beautifying their own cities. Known as the City Beautiful Movement, it emphasized planning to improve streets, public buildings, and public spaces such as parks. This movement spread to dozens of other cities around the U.S., including Washington, D.C., where plans were made by 1902, led to the creation of what we now know as the National Mall. The Chicago World's Fair was the first one to have exhibitions from other nations. 46 nations participated, and Norway sent a replica of a 9th century Viking ship that was found in a burial mound in Gokstand in 1880. It is the largest preserved Viking ship in Norway. Twelve men sail the replica across the Atlantic Ocean for the World's Fair. Captain Anderson wanted to prove that it was possible for the Vikings to have sailed to the New World before Christopher Columbus's discovery. And I gotta admit, pulling up into the harbor with that boat must have been pretty satisfying considering the World's Fair was supposed to be for Christopher Columbus. The ship was moved to Lincoln Park in 1919 and in 1996 it was taken to Good Templar Park in Geneva, Illinois, where it has been going under a heavy restoration. The Viking ship exhibit is finally set to open up in April of this year, after years of work to restore the ship. Back to the World's Fair. There were several products that debuted at the fair. Some of them we still know today, like Juicy Fruit Gum, Cream of Wheat, and Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. The dishwasher and fluorescent light bulbs were also displayed there. It was also the first fair to have an area for amusements, which included carnival rides. The most popular rides at the World's Fair was the World's First Ferris Wheel. It stood 264 feet tall, and it could fit 2,160 people on it at a time. It had 36 cars, large enough to hold 40 people each. People paid 50 cents to ride it, which was two times the cost to the ticket to enter the fair. Its popularity helped offset the huge cost of putting on the fair. The Ferris wheel was so popular that it was moved to the north side of Chicago and stayed in operation for 10 more years until it was sold in 1904 for the World's Fair that was going to be in St. Louis, Missouri. Buffalo Bill Cody and his Wild West show wanted to participate in the fair. However, his business manager did not think it was fair that they would have to pay 50% of the ticket sales to the exposition. Instead, the manager was able to secure 15 acres right next to the fairgrounds for Buffalo Bill to use. There was an 18,000 seat arena built and Buffalo Bill's Wild West show began performing four weeks before the opening of the World's Fair. The show was called Buffalo Bill's Wild West and Congress of of Rough Riders of the World. There were 100 former cavalry members, 46 cowboys, 97 Cheyenne and Sioux Indians, herds of buffalo, horses, and elk. Also there to perform was the sharpshooter named Annie Oakley. An average of 16,000 people attended each of the 318 shows. The show ended one day after the closure of the World's Fair. Cody made about $1 million in profit, which would be close to $30 million today. Because of Chicago having a World's Fair, they wanted a rush job on the Lincoln Park area to make it look nice for people visiting from all over the world. Due to the rush job and also the fire taking out all of the gravestones, no one knew where anyone was buried anymore. So the city decided to do one thing, 
leave the bodies where they were and just build the park over the top of it. The city claimed that they did move 4,000 Confederate soldiers to the Oakwood Cemetery and reburied them to what is now known as the Confederate Mound, but some researchers aren't sure that all of the soldiers' remains were moved before the fire. Also, it is believed that 10 to 12,000 total bodies are still left in the cemetery. After the decision was made to just leave the rest of the remains, the park continued to expand south and north, and it today covers seven miles of Chicago's lakefront. Today, Lincoln Park is the largest park in Chicago and covers 1,208 acres along Lake Michigan. It has a zoo and many museums. There are also beaches, recreation areas, a chess pavilion, harbors, and and nature reserves. Artist Pamela Bano started a project called Hidden Truths, the Chicago City Cemetery and Lincoln Park. She became curious about the Couch Museum in Lincoln Park and wanted to find out why it was there. She found that a lot of information on the internet was inaccurate, and she set out to find the true story. Through her efforts, markers have been installed around the park to help tell the story of the city cemetery. Each of these six markers have a map of the 1863 cemetery with a red You Are Here marker with white dots that show placements of other markers. On the other side of the marker is a summary of the historical importance of the location. There is a lot of great and interesting information on the website hiddentruths.northwestern.edu and I have that link down below. Now that you know this area used to be the city cemetery and that there were in fact thousands of bodies left behind, it might not shock you to hear that this place is notoriously haunted. I have never been shy about talking about my struggles with dyslexia, but I also think it is really important for people to know the signs so that they can get help. Dyslexia is a learning disability that is not well known, but it is way more common than you might think. In fact, one in 10 people are diagnosed with dyslexia. Some of the common signs is late talking, learning new words slowly, writing letters backwards, and a delay in reading and spelling. There is no cure for this, and although it's challenging, it does not mean that we are stupid because dyslexia does not affect intelligence. It is better for children to get diagnosed early so that they can get accommodations they need in school. If you are an adult and think that you might have it, it is never too late to ask for help. One website I find helpful is dyslexiaaid.org, where you can find out some great information. Understanding and educating others about dyslexia is just as important as diagnosing someone with it. With Lincoln Park now being beautiful and modern, it's hard to imagine that there are still bodies buried underneath your feet. When I was doing research to the area, I found out that many people didn't know the history of the area, and even fewer people knew that it used to be the city cemetery. This might account for so many people being shocked to see ghosts wandering around the park. This is a big area to cover, so I can't cover it all, but I found some really interesting ghost stories from the park and the zoo, and I will talk about a few key buildings in the area that are known to be haunted. So let's start off our tour at the Lincoln Park Zoo. Lincoln Park Zoo started in 1868 with a gift of two pairs of swans from New York City's Central Park. Two years later, the park built its first animal house and added bison, foxes, elk, a puma, peacocks, and more to the land. 
1878, the Lincoln Park commissioners required that the park to always remain free to the public. In 1904, the Bird House was added and then the Lion House opened in 1912. Following the World's Fair, the Viking ship was put on display at the zoo until it moved to Illinois in 1994. The zoo installed Chicago's first aquarium in 1923. Today, it is the Park Place Cafe. A children's zoo was added in 1959, and the zoo continued to grow and improve until today it has 15 animal exhibits, five cafes, and an ice cream shop. It also holds various activities that teach children and adults more about the animal world. The zoo has also managed to remain free thanks to support from donors. There have been many stories of people enjoying their day looking at the animals when suddenly they feel like they are not the only ones enjoying the exhibits. starting off in the Lion House because this building is one of the most haunted in the zoo. Of course, we all know that there are graves underneath it, but what might help keep this house so haunted is the fact that it was built with limestone. A limestone is believed to be a conductor for paranormal activity. The most prominent ghost seen around the Lion House is the woman in white. She has been seen wandering around the area in a white Victorian-style dress, but she is most famous for haunting the women's restroom. People have reported flickering lights, faucets turning on and off on their own, along with toilets flushing randomly. Others have reported the slamming of stalled doors, random cold spots, and a woman's disembodied voice when they know they are all alone. Another strange occurrence is women seeing this ghost standing behind them in the bathroom mirror while they are washing their hands. The zoo has a farm area that was made with the purpose of showing city kids what it was like to be on a working farm. As a former member of an FFA officer team, I love that idea. Uh, that's Future Farmers of America, if you don't know what that is. So many people have no idea what FFA means, and whenever I tell people I was in the FFA program, they just stare at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> While the idea of having a farm was really great, what they found under the ground during construction of the barn could have caused more hauntings. While they were building the foundations of the barn, the construction crew found several bodies. The director of the zoo called the city several times to ask what to do with the bodies, and the city never returned their call, so they decided to leave the coffins in the ground and build the barn on top of it. Ever since then, people have reported seeing shadow figures inside the barn, strange voices, doors opening and closing on their own, and EVPs are common. But there was one EVP that was caught inside the barn, and it is more creepy than most EVPs. A ghost hunting crew caught an EVP that sounded exactly like Dr. Fisher. Dr. Fisher was the man in charge of the zoo at the time the farm was built. The farm was his favorite project to build. Only problem is, Dr. Fisher was still alive and he was not on the property at the time the EVP was recorded. So that is that creepy mimic trickster doppelganger type of vibe that always creeps me out. Other things that happen around the zoo are random cold spots and reports of people seeing women in 1800s dresses and men in their 1800s best, wandering around the pathways before vanishing into thin air. The other thing that people say that happens at the zoo is described as a wandering 
zone of dark energy. This dark and negative energy moves around the zoo, making people suddenly feel anger, sadness, and sometimes makes them physically sick and the feelings pass as soon as they came. People who take pictures at the zoo report strange light anomalies, mists, orbs, and sometimes they will take a picture and see faces staring back at them. I wonder if the animals know that there are ghosts wandering around. I bet they do. Animals and children are always more sensitive to energies around them. Our next haunted spot is out in the park itself, starting off with the only above ground grave marking left in the park. It's a large white mausoleum surrounded by an iron fence with the family name Couch at the top of it. It is also one of the few structures in the city that survived the Great Chicago Fire. The Couch Mausoleum has a weird history and a bit of a mystery as well, because no one knows if there is even anyone inside it and no one knows why it was left when the park took over. Apparently in 1903, someone opened it and claimed the inside was completely empty. It has been closed ever since, and according to some articles I found about the mausoleum, the current Couch family members said that their past loved ones are still inside, but they won't allow it to be reopened. So we will never know what is inside. According to an article from www.literalape.com, a man named Adam Selzer became obsessed with wanting to know what was inside, so much so that he started dreaming about the mausoleum. He finally couldn't take it anymore and decided he was going to go take a look. If you look at the entrance to the grave, you can see that the door's design is underwhelming and it doesn't have a keyhole. Adam got curious and decided to take a closer look. He noticed that there was a small gap at the bottom of the door. He found a way to get his iPhone in the gap and take a photo of the inside. What did it show? Another door. Yep, that's right. There was a door within a door. The photo showed the real door to the mausoleum. So while we might never know if anyone is still inside, what happens on the outside might answer the question. People who have walked around the mausoleum have felt random cold spots and heard strange voices on the wind. A white mist has also been seen wandering around the mausoleum, and some have even reported seeing the mist travel inside as if there was no door there at all. The mausoleum has an urban legend attached to it. It's basically, if you're brave enough, you go up to the door, you knock three times, and the door will swing open, revealing a big ghost standing in the doorway. The city normally tries to ignore the times bodies have been dug up in various places during construction, but one time there were so many bodies found that the papers reported it. In 1998, a new parking lot was being built, and when they started the groundwork, they uncovered 81 bodies. The area they were digging in used to be the potter's field. A potter's field is a designated area to bury people who were poor and could not afford a normal burial with a tombstone. This area was also used to bury captured confederates soldiers that passed away at nearby Camp Douglas, but they think that the area where the Confederates were buried is now a softball field. The parking lot has lots of strange things that happen, including shadow figures and apparitions of men and women in tattered 1800s clothing. Strange screams and voices have also been heard in the area. The softball field has lots of stories about ghosts of Confederate soldiers wandering the grounds. Shifting gears here a bit for a second to talk about the Chicago History Museum. Today, the museum is found in Lincoln Park. The original museum with all of its artifacts was lost in the Great Chicago Fire. After the fire, they built a new building at the park. They also were able to purchase new artifacts in 1920 from an estate sale of a collector named Charles F. Gunther. He was a famous candy maker at the time, and he had thousands of artifacts in his private collection that the museum was able to buy. 
One of these artifacts was the bed that President Abraham Lincoln died on. Lincoln was assassinated on April 15, 1865, while he was attending a play at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. After he was shot in the head by John Wilkes Booth, he was carried across the street to a house where they laid him on a bed while he waited for the doctor. Sadly, he passed away in the bed and somehow that bed got into Gunther's private collection. I have been to Ford's Theater and the house that uh, Lincoln passed away in, but I was in like eighth grade when we did that and I didn't know that the bed wasn't the actual bed. I thought that was the real bed. It turns out that the bed's not exact, but the pillow is the actual pillow that Lincoln did rest his head on while he waited. And I think there's still blood on it, if I remember correctly. So the bed went into Gunther's private collection, but they left a pillow behind at the actual house where Lincoln passed away at. If you ever get to go take a tour of the house in Ford's Theater, I highly recommend it. It is amazing. It's sad, but they have so many cool Lincoln artifacts inside the museum too, inside the Ford's Theater Museum. It's very neat. I would suggest anyone going to DC, make sure that is a stop on your must-see list. And I'm also starting to lose my voice, so sorry if my voice sounds like it's fading here near the end. Okay, so back to the Chicago History Museum. Knowing that they have the bed that Abraham Lincoln died in, it might not surprise you to hear that the ghost most seen at the museum is Abraham Lincoln. He has been seen, top hat and all, pacing around the bed and wandering the hallways. For those who don't know, Lincoln was one of our most clairvoyant presidents the U.S. has ever had. He saw visions of the Civil War before it began, and he also saw visions of his funeral chain and his own death. Speaking of Lincoln's funeral chain, it is said that you can still hear the whistle of his funeral train pulling into the station on the anniversary of the original funeral train ride. I talked about this ghost train in another episode, but I can't remember if it was a bonus episode or not, so I will give you a rundown really quick of the ghost train. The train is seen and heard at night through many states. It passes by the same route it took when it carried President Lincoln's body to his final resting place in Springfield, Illinois. When people see the train pass by, it is said that the tracks fill with fog and time stands still. Then you see the black funeral train pass by on the tracks. You can see the ghosts of Union soldiers standing guard on the train, but if you look closely, they are not ghosts, they are skeletons. If you ever see this train, check your watch because it is said that time will stand still and your watch will stop and never start again. For the next location, I wanted to give a trigger warning to anyone that might have an issue with suicides. I just wanted to let you know that that's coming up. There was a spot in this park that is well known for it. So I just wanted to give everyone a heads up that's coming up for the next section, but I'm still going to talk about more places after it. So if you want to skip ahead a little bit, feel free. The park is also known to have ghosts of many suicide victims. During the Chicago World's Fair, the city decided to build a sightseeing bridge over the lagoon in the park. The bridge was built in 1893, stood somewhere between 40 to 75 feet tall, and was named High Bridge. It was meant to give people a bird's eye view of the World's Fair and the city of Chicago. It did not take long for this bridge to get a new name, Suicide Bridge. This bridge quickly became a popular spot for people to kill themselves. 
The bridge was barely completed before someone committed suicide on it. It is hard to know the exact number of deaths that happened due to poor record keeping of the times, but it is estimated that the bridge had over 100 suicides. Many people jumped, but some hung themselves from the bridge and some shot themselves before falling into the water below. Others took poison and then walked into the lagoon that was underneath the bridge to drown themselves. Sadly, this area was like a magnet for people who wanted to die. The lagoon area below also had many accidental drownings and bodies were found in the water often. The deaths happened in such a rapid procession that the city decided they needed to take action. They decided to take down the bridge in hopes that it would save the reputation of the park. The bridge was taken down in 1919. While the bridge was short-lived, the ghosts of its many victims have stayed in the area. Even before the bridge was taken down, the lagoon had a haunted reputation. Many people would report seeing ghosts of people standing on and around the bridge and the area below before they vanished. Shortly after the park opened, police officers began to refuse to patrol the park at night because of strong paranormal activity. There is one account of an officer who was patrolling the area near the zoo in the late 1800s. He was walking past the playground one night when he suddenly stopped dead in his tracks. He watched as every swing on the playground swung side to side as if someone was running their hand past every chain. Then the officer noticed that he could see a phantom hand with no body. This time, the hand passed back through all of the chains, but the swings did not move like the first time. After the officer got after his shock, he noticed that he could see two white hands. He jumped the fence to investigate, and the phantom hands then waved wildly as if they were being waved over a person head. The officer ran after these gliding hands as they glided over a frozen pond and towards the suicide bridge before they disappeared. Many other ghosts have been seen in the area. Strange voices, screams, phantom splashes as if someone just fell into the water, phantom gunshots, and mists along with balls of light have been seen. Back out in the park, there is a big stone with a plaque on it. It is called the Kennison Stone. The plaque states that the stone is in honor of David Kennison, who was the last survivor of the Boston Tea Party. He passed away at 115 years old. After the fire swept through Lincoln Park, they could not find his exact grave marking, so they placed this memorial as close to where they could remember his grave was. While it was a kind gesture, historians now would consider Mr. Kennison Chicago's first con man. After people began to dig into his past, they found out that David could not have been 115 years old. It was thought that he was likely in his late 80s, and he got the whole town to believe his story that he was the last survivor of the Boston Tea Party. This gained him so much respect from people in town that it often meant he would get free stuff and his funeral was fully paid for by the city and it included a big parade in his honor. Chicago is split on if they think he was telling the truth or not, but most people think that this guy played everyone into being famous. His grave marking does not have any ghost stories that I could find, but I still thought that was a really funny story nonetheless. Our last stop is up the street from Lincoln Park itself, but it is extremely haunted, so I wanted to include it. It is the spot of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre is a famous mob hit that happened on February 14, 1992. It happened in a garage at 2122 North Clark Street in the Lincoln Park neighborhood, and six men of the Northside gang and a man who just liked to hang out with them were inside the garage awaiting a shipment of alcohol 
alcohol from Canada. Now, remember, this was during Prohibition times, so this would have been extremely illegal. At 10.30 a.m., a police car pulled up to the garage and four men exited. Two were dressed as police officers, and the other two were dressed in nice suits. The two men in police uniforms entered the garage from the front, and the other two entered from the back. The fake police officers acted like they were doing an alcohol raid, and the seven men inside the garage thought that they would just go to prison for a bit and be out soon. The officers lined them up against a wall, and when the other two men in suits entered, they handed the officers Thompson submachine guns, also known as Tommy guns. The four men then opened fire on the other seven men while their backs were turned. The room and bodies were riddled with bullet holes and blood was everywhere. After the shooting, the two fake officers cuffed the two men who had come with them and led them out at gunpoint and drove away. The people who lived in the neighborhood thought that police had taken care of whatever had happened inside the garage and didn't think much of it until one of the mobster's German shepherds named Highball would not stop barking. Seven hours had passed since the shots were fired and Highball had not stopped barking, so finally two people from the neighborhood went to investigate, and what they saw sent them running and screaming for help. Inside lay seven men riddled in bullets. The victims were members of George Bugs Morin's Northside gang, including Bugs' second-in-command and brother-in-law, Albert Kachelik, Adam Hayer, Albert Weinshank, Frank Gussenberg, Peter Gussenberg, and two collaborators named Reinhardt H. Schwimmer and a guy who liked to hang out with gangs but really wasn't a part of a gang named John May. After they were discovered seven hours later, the real police came and they found one of the men still alive. It was Frank. Amazing he was still alive, considering he had 14 bullet wounds in him. But when the cops asked him who did it, he replied, no one shot me. Even on his deathbed, he was still following the mobster's code of not being a snitch. He passed away a few hours later at the hospital. The main person of interest was rival gang leader Al Capone, but they could never prove it and the case is still unsolved. After the killings, the city decided that it was time to crack down on organized crime. Since the shooting, the garage has been torn down and the city won't let anything be built on top of it. Today, it is a grassy patch of ground between an apartment building and a building for senior living. But these mobsters seem to want to hang around the area after their grisly death. The apartment building to the left side of what used to be the garage has experienced a lot of poltergeist activity, from lights flickering, electronics malfunctioning, to things going missing and ending up in random places. In the senior living home to the right of the area, people have claimed to see mobsters standing behind them in the mirror. Day and night, people have claimed to have seen men in 1920-style suits and fedoras wandering around the area before vanishing. Strange light anomalies show up in pictures when taken around the area, and dogs get upset and refuse to walk past the spot. EVPs and spirit box sessions have been performed there by local ghost tours and paranormal enthusiasts, and the site is very active. Perhaps the most disturbing thing reported in the area is after a fresh snowfall. It is said that you can see the outlines of the bodies from the massacre. The outlines are positioned exactly like the crime scene photos, and the kicker is there are no footprints leading to or from the strange outlines.
Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I had a lot of fun covering it. Lincoln Park and the Lincoln Park Zoo. When I first started this, I had no idea how haunted it actually was. And I came across some really interesting stories. So I hope that you guys enjoyed it because I definitely had fun making it. This episode was hard for me to finish. It took me a long time to write up the script and then it took me over the course of several days to record this. Um, I've got some personal things going on in my life that I just do not have time to make episodes as much as I used to right now, but I think once this pandemic ends, I'll be able to get back on track, I hope. So we'll see. Anyway, I have to get rid of my website. I can't afford the big yearly payment that's about to come up. I really can't afford it. And honestly, it's not benefiting me anyway, because I'm never going to be able to sell merchandise because I can't afford the input Like you have to pay a lot to get a lot and I don't have the money. So anyway, (laughs) the only website I have is the one that is provided to me for free from Podbean. So if you want to go check that out, all you can do is listen to episodes on that. But that's the only thing I have right now. It is historicallyhaunted.podbean.com and that's all I've got. And also, if you want to email me, please email me to historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. I don't know how it happened, but I have an old email still floating around and I don't use that account anymore. So it is historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. I appreciate any support that you guys give me. Thank you all so much for listening. You guys are awesome. And I can't wait to see you guys back here with another episode. I have no idea when the next one's going to come out. I will make an episode when I have time. Um, That's pretty much my life right now. When I've got time, it'll come. If I don't have time, I can't do it. So I'm sorry that they're so sporadic and far few and in between, but it's just what I'm dealing with right now. I'm just trying to stay positive. So anyway, thank you all so much for the support. I can't wait to see you guys back here again with another fun episode of A Historically Haunted Place. I hope you guys all stay healthy and safe, and I'll see you guys back here soon. Bye, everybody.